0: This is Alex. I'm from Boston.
1: Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chess. Welcome back, guys. Uh, Happy Friday. Uh, It's the eve of the Premier League weekend starting up again. Um, And I have Ben Jacobs back here. Ben, welcome back. I know you've been a busy man continuing all your good work on Twitter, uh, but it's great to talk to you in person.
0: Yeah, great to be back. And things are looking a bit healthier now for Chelsea all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, two good results. And um, last time we spoke, I was asking you why are we in the news so much? All of a sudden we're doing things behind the scenes uh, and I'm feeling a little left out when when I find out that it's <laughs> been happening in the background. Uh, but I guess that's the nature of Chelsea and that's the nature of um, being a fan at, of Chelsea. But let's jump into it. News breaking today that uh, Christopher Vivell uh, is a technical director or a former technical director at Leipzig, uh, heavily linked to Chelsea now. He's left his post at uh, Leipzig and expected to come in, uh, join the Boley revolution. Uh, but we've been here before and we've expected someone to come in and things have gone south. So... What can you share about this deal and, and uh, vivell in, in general?
0: Yeah, so this is a deal that can be considered a lot more advanced than Freund. Not that actually that latter deal didn't get to a point of completion, at least verbally, but he was still ultimately employed. Whereas in this case, we've seen Leipzig actually react and immediately release him from his contract which means that he's now a free agent and it remains to be seen contractually and it depends on the exact terms of departure whether that makes him immediately able to start at Chelsea or if there is a period of gardening leave but this is very normal sometimes it feels acrimonious especially if the club makes a rather short statement, as we saw from Leipzig. But the reality is, is when you have a senior figure, especially around recruitment, who is outgoing, you try and get them out the door as soon as possible, because if you keep them working for you for too long, then inadvertently they will end up having too much information. And it's not a case of them staying at the club and gathering that information in any untoward manner. It's simply the fact that they're working for you. And because clubs work so far ahead, they'll know a lot about your direction. And what also complicates it is the fact that there's a fair amount of intertwinement between Chelsea and the Red Bull group anyway. So you may have a scenario, even though he was... Technical director, where he's well aware of and asked to represent the group and Leipzig in particular, on and Kunku or Vardial, knowing that he would be going to Chelsea. So you simply can't have that. So you push them out the door as soon as you possibly can. And the statement can make out like something's blown up, but it's always a little bit more considered. So in this particular case, Vivell was actually part of a duo that Chelsea were trying to bring in and the talks therefore started at the same time as with Christoph Freund and Chelsea were very hopeful that they would get Freund as sporting director and then Vivelle as their technical director and then the reality is obviously proven to be the case that Freund hasn't come and Vivelle has and I think part of the problem with Freund and why the Red Bull group played such hardball was because they were well aware weeks ago that Freund would end up taking more than one and they in the end held him to his contract so it will be billed as a U-turn and technically that's what it is because he told Chelsea that he was going to join but in practical terms it's more down to the fact that with Freund there was no release clause because he'd only just signed particularly now so Chelsea would have had to wait for at least a year before they could have actually swooped in and got him and as a consequence, it became a deal that they thought was done and ended up not being possible. So that takes him out of the equation, whereas with Vivelle, it's a little bit different because he's eligible to join Chelsea, especially now as a free agent. But even if he'd have stayed... There would have been an ability to negotiate and get him through a different path. But this is kind of better for Chelsea, especially if he has actually been dismissed, because that might mean that he can start a whole lot sooner. So I expect this to be official, at least as far as the paperwork is concerned, by early next week. And then we wait and see. And it may depend on any possible gardening leave as to when it's actually announced in public. But I expect it to be formal as far as Vivell and Chelsea are concerned by early next week. And then we'll just wait and see when the start date is but obviously he'll be ready by january and then his role will be data driven it will be around scouting and it will be strategic which is kind of what he was doing for the red bull group and prior to his last role as technical director he was also a head scout so he's got a keen eye for talent and i think that rather than necessarily involving him in too much of the negotiation or too much of the kind of internal club side, they will look more to have him have a focus on incomings that are young and also group pathways. And I think the structure of how Chelsea allocate talent is going to be one of the big things that changes because it's obviously going to be more data driven. It's going to be more multi-club driven and he'll be a part of all of that. So what they've got is a strategic thinker. They've got someone with an eye for talent. They've got somebody that technically can negotiate, or even if they're not negotiating around finances, they can be part of the luring of a player, the courting of a player much earlier in the process. And he has obviously worked within a group model as well. So he ticks a lot of boxes. And the final, and I'm sure we'll come on to this next, aspect that he or anyone in that position adds, and Carl McCauley plays into this as well, is by having a new manager that is prepared to play the model game as opposed to Thomas Tuchel, who perhaps wanted a bit more authority and didn't want all these meetings of recruitment. Then having Carl McCauley who can represent the manager and also do recruitment and is a specialist on behalf of his manager and is used to playing in that style. Then having a technical director that can think more about the strategy and philosophy and scouting it all not only means that Chelsea are better stocked but it also puts them in a position where they're not in a rush anymore so now the key determination is what do they do with all of this? Do they add a sporting director on top right now and they've had many meetings with different candidates at the time of recording no final decision has been made do they stick with todd bowley who has really enjoyed this role and does he become the interim sporting director through the january window as well or alternatively do they line up someone they can't get now and play a waiting game to get the kind of sporting director that they really want. Michael Edwards is the most notable in terms of the names that they might chase afterwards, but let's not forget, and I don't want to put a suggestion out there that this specifically is Chelsea's plan, but even Christoph Freund might be the type of person that could be available in a year. So if they can't find the right sporting director now, I think the overriding message I get, and I'm not saying they won't find the right sporting director now, but what I am saying is that they won't see it as failure if they don't appoint now, if the right name doesn't become available. And then if that name is someone that they have to play a longer game for, they're quite prepared to do that because in Todd Bowley, the overriding feeling that I am told is that he's very comfortable as interim sporting director. He's enjoying the role. He feels like he increasingly is the best qualified for the role, at least in the short term, because he's had that window and he can build his recruitment team around what he actually has experienced from a hands on perspective. So it wouldn't remotely surprise me if Chelsea don't find a standout candidate for sporting director. And they might. But if they don't, one other option is to have your recruitment specialist in Macaulay, to have your technical director in Vivelle, to give Neil Barth some responsibility, and then let Bowley continue as usual and instead turn your attention through Boley, through Egg Barley, who's also, let's not forget, involved on the recruitment side and through Glick too, to build the model first. And then when you've got the model and you almost build it from the ground up, you build it from what you've inherited. You build it from what Boley wants. You build it from what Glick's experienced at the City Group. You build it from what Vivella's experienced at the Red Bull Group. And then once you've built it, you're like, right, Now we've got the structure. Even though some might say this is backwards, now we've got that, who's right to come and lead this from a sporting director point of view? And they might take a bit more time. They might not. They might have a standout interview, may have taken place already, and they may say, let's just get everyone in place right now. But I think the overwhelming thing sources are telling me close to the ownership group is just that they feel quite calm Uncomfortable because they've got a lot of different options and now they've got time on their side and a few appointments in, they can make these decisions based upon what is right strategically, not based upon firefighting out of urgency because the outgoings are outnumbering the incomings. They're no longer thin, so they now have that ability to take their time.
1: Yeah, and, and we say, you know, when we look at the players and, and transfers, we say... If he's not available now, let's just wait if that is our primary target or, uh, you know, work around what else could we do around players. And similar here, it's, um, yes, Michael Edwards was the primary target. We went for Freund, like you said, and we clearly know that that didn't work out. There's a U-turn. Um, so why not focus on other areas? And and Vivell seems like uh, he's a good fit, obviously, from what I've read, from what you've shared. Um, he has experience in, in a group model like we want to build here at Chelsea. Uh, he is a data-driven person, uh, and he's done scouting. He's kind of worked his way up mm-hmm. to that director position, which is what uh, you want him to bring to the club and bring his expertise. And, and ultimately, I know he may have been involved in the in Cuckoo uh, and uh, Garvidio deals on the Leipzig side. Now he comes to the Chelsea side. I don't know how much he will be involved, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But um, I think a, this might be a good point, Ben, to maybe make a good distinction between technical director and sporting director, right? I think um, we look at it and we say it's just positions or names, and sporting director is a little more important because that's what we've come to see and hear. But I think technical director is equally important, not just for the present or the next window, but in 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 Vivell's words, three four windows down the road, where we're focused on maybe a younger player coming in and going out. So just make, let's let's make that distinction for the listeners in terms of the focus for a sporting director versus a technical director
0: yeah i mean i think the first thing i'd say is don't worry too much about any titles because you have technical director and director of football you have sporting director yeah. you have regardless of what his title is a minority owner and chairman in todd bowley that even if he steps back by title is still going to be heavily involved you have advisors you have Bed Agbali, the majority owner, who doesn't carry a recruitment title but has equally been heavily involved within the recruitment. And then at other clubs, you have head scouts or chief scouts, and they all come together, within Chelsea's case, Graham Potter and a recruitment specialist to make a decision, which is likely to be by numbers rather than giving anyone autonomy. So if we want to be glib about it without knowing the exact model or structure yet, because they haven't appointed everybody, we can basically say that a technical director traditionally will work further ahead. They will look at younger players. They will be across scouting. They will look at forward planning. And a sporting director will traditionally be the one that is negotiating and getting deals done. So, if you flip it and you look at some of the players that Chelsea have been chasing at Leipzig, then although Vivell will be aware of the deals and has actually spoken on record about Vardial, for example, saying it's rubbish that Manchester City had had an 80 million euros bid turned down earlier in the window, he's not necessarily the one around the table who is actually doing the final financial negotiations. He is across the growth of whatever model Chelsea implement from, as the name suggests, a technical perspective, which means that he ensures that the scouting is in place, the data is in place, the shortlists are in place, and then he plans for the future windows ahead, which is what every good club does. And then the sporting director will obviously be across that same strategy. There'll be overlap and there'll be collaboration. But the sporting director will ultimately take more accountability for who Chelsea do or don't get in the short term. But where there's overlap these days is that most of these big signings as been proven with Nkunku and Vardial and Bellingham or Declan Rice. You have to play the long game. So I look at it like, a baton relay at an Olympics, really, where you're, if we were just talking generically now, because Chelsea don't have all of these positions, but in essence, your data and your gut instinct, your scouts run the first leg and they allocate a list of targets. Then they pass on the baton to slightly more senior people like a head of scout. And he then watches the player and looks at the stats and then passes on reports and recommendations. And then at that point, the third leg is the technical director. But the technical director is like running alongside the scouting network already. And then he takes it on and then he delivers it to the people that actually have to finish the race and win the race. And that's where naturally you start bringing in your sporting director. But again, he's running alongside the technical director in the third leg, but he's the one that perhaps gets the glory along with the manager and along with the board. But this is where it becomes complicated in a model. And when you're working so far ahead, because when you are, Being a bit more opportunistic when a name becomes available to to a knock on effect in the market, when you just see somebody that you weren't going to go for, but you were, when you get an unexpected outgoing, the sporting director and the manager and others that are executive at the club have to kind of firefight. And that's where they have to take lots of meetings, they have to scramble around. And the technical director may be asked to be a part of that, but it's not as much of their bread and butter. So the technical director has a slightly calmer role. But strategically, it's really important because they're the ones that are feeding in and implementing the strategy of the entire club. And they're often working with younger players and they're often playing a longer game. And with Vivelle, what they like about him is not just the fact that he's got that experience from the Red Bull model, but he's built up a network in North, Central and South America. And not just because they're an American-led consortium, but because they see value there in that particular region. And then they'll use Mendes as an advisor to build a bit more More of a European network with maybe some clubs in lower tiers and bandings. But if they're going to go multi club model, they're going to be looking at South America. They might look at Central America. They could look at North America. It could also be quite useful in NWSL and in women's USL, as far as Emma Hayes' Chelsea is concerned. So you can understand why territorially they want to sign up people that not just are relatively young passionate and good experience within a model, but come with that instant network, which is really important because then you know who to turn to and how to use it. So that in a really like superficial way is the distinction. Lines are always blurred. And sometimes your technical director is asked to be your sporting director. Sometimes your sporting director is asked to be your technical director. And it's complicated further by the fact that the chairman and the minority owner is currently the interim sporting director. And if he departs, it could add extra layers towards the hierarchy. So one of the things Chelsea are going to have to do is have clear lanes and hierarchy and structure internally within whatever model they finally implement, but it's ambitious They've got their man, whereas with Freund, it's a failure, loosely speaking. Who knows? It might come back to benefit them in the end, depending on who they get. With Edwards, as far as him starting now, it's a, in inverted commas again, failure. But important to note that with Rivelle, That was the technical director that they considered. It was the name that they wanted. So they'll be very pleased to get him through the door. And it's a building block towards getting clarity over what the internal hierarchy is for recruitment and what the overall model is going forwards.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate you helping make the distinction, even though it might end up being intertwined. Um, But what brings, listening to you, what brings back, comes back to my mind is uh, that Boley interview here in New York. Uh, where they were asked, and, you know, you don't really have a background in the sport. And he said, but we know human capital. And that's exactly what this sounds like, is they're bringing in the people that have the connections and networks, like you were mentioning, along with the experience that will help Chelsea, whatever model we end up with. Uh, and Vivelle obviously fits that mold, but even Edwards and, and if it's Freud next summer uh, or whenever that ends up being, if it ends up being. Uh, I think you're st- starting to see as a fan for me that... The Tukul situation was a little little blurry and a little, little out of line in the sense, but there was a longer plan and that's where we're headed. Uh, and of course, it's only been a month and we only had three games, but eventually over time, we will see the benefits of it. Ben, we've mentioned two names here, Inkunku and um, Gavridol. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope I'm not saying that wrong, <laughs> um, but let's let's just focus on Nkunku first. Uh, something that came out of left field in this sense because it was all going on in the background and medical had happened uh, obviously it started getting reported and then we heard there might also be a pre-contract agreement in place with him yet to be de- uh, determined with Leipzig what the negotiation is, is is there a release clause do Chelsea pay a, little, pay a little bit more can you just identify the timeline of this whole whole interaction negotiation and what the next few weeks look like are we going to get have a resolution or does this drag on a little bit more
0: Well, I mean, it drags on in a legal sense until the deal is complete. So don't be surprised from a fan perspective if it's not just announced right now or imminently. But that doesn't mean that the deal isn't very close. And Chelsea have been smart here because they've moved ahead of their rivals by being decisive. So the situation, as I understand it, but I appreciate there's been some confusion, is that there was a medical somewhere near Frankfurt and Chelsea staff were present. Now, for balance, the perspective over at Leipzig is that that medical was for insurance purposes and Chelsea were not present. But talking to enough sources, including close to the player, I'm pretty confident in saying the medical 100% happened and Chelsea staff were there. So why do you do a medical? Because you want to progress a deal as fast as you possibly can, even though the player won't join until the summer of 2023. So between player and Chelsea, there is an agreement. And again, there is some confusion here. My understanding is a pre-agreement has been signed, but it is not exclusive or legally binding until there is full formal paperwork in place. And to get all of that, you obviously have to do the medical, even though he won't join for a year's time. So Chelsea are very confident. They believe that they've got buy-in from the player. But make no mistake here, somebody else could come to Nkunku or Leipzig and there's nothing stopping him signing a pre-agreement with another club and there is nothing stopping Leipzig negotiating with another club. And this is why Chelsea are moving fast. But they believe they're lining everything up and that this deal will get done. It's not if, it's when. But again, to reiterate, because Chelsea have been burned before, with confidence and deals and they've been hijacked there is still a ability for the player to talk to anybody and there's still some work to be done between the clubs to get everything over the line and Chelsea were presented ultimately with two options not by Leipzig just within their own discussions One was you pay the release clause or two was that you bid above the release clause. And that's very beneficial for a number of reasons. One, because you jump ahead of your rivals and you can actually get the deal done now Two, because the release clause when activated in 2023 is a lump sum payment. Whereas if you pay above the release clause and then you get an offer accepted, you can pay it in multiple installments, which means you're paying less upfront, which is useful from Chelsea's perspective and obviously by offering more and him still going in 2023, Leipzig benefit as well. So Chelsea see that as win, win, win. I don't think it will necessarily, from what I gather, be significantly, not astonishingly or astronomically more than the release clause. If they want him in January, it's a different story, but knowing the release clause is there, Chelsea will offer more, but not, Crazily more. But they can discuss add ons as well. So they can say, look, the release clause was a lump sum up front. We'll pay it to you in three or four instalments, but we'll add an extra 5 million in add ons and we'll add an extra 5 million to the base release clause price. And then suddenly you get a guaranteed 5 million more than the 60 million release clause. And you get 5 or even potentially 10 million more in add ons. They might not all be gettable, but then the number, even if they don't quite reach it, seems closer to his current market value, which is between 70 and 75 million euros. And Leipzig are in a really intriguing position here, because when they got Unkunku to sign, it was on the players' terms, inclusive of the number of the release clause. So, Everyone knows it's lower than market value, but if it was market value or higher than market value, then Leipzig could prevent Nkunku from leaving effectively, knowing that the release clause might price him out of the market. So Nkunku said, well, I'll sign. And then if the release clause is lower he's definitely going to get his move because if nobody agrees the fee, there'll be a mad chase at that price because it's a bargain at the release clause. So then there's an incentive for Leipzig to sell him earlier and for higher, so they get the most amount of money. And that's what kind of makes it really intriguing. And then from Chelsea's point of view, they are also in a difficult position because Chelsea could say, well, we don't really want to give you much more because we can just pay the release clause in a year's time. And Leipzig can say, well, yeah, but then the player might have 10 offers, and you've got no guarantee of getting him. So it's really quite a complicated negotiation because of the different dynamics at play. And I think you're going to see a lot of poker moves where Leipzig could even turn around and encourage somebody else to bid now to make Chelsea go even higher. And Chelsea could say, well, listen, the player wants us. We don't really need to give you a penny more than the release clause, because we firmly believe that if we do just let the release clause come into play then he'll still join us over however many rivals. And this is part of the dynamic at the moment of the negotiation. And as I understand it, it's not there yet, but it's heading in that direction. But Chelsea's confidence lies in the fact that they believe that the player wants to join them. Otherwise he wouldn't have undertaken the medical so early. So it's looking like this deal is going to get done, but it is not 100% signed just yet yet. And let's wait and see whether another rival was to enter the race and try and hijack it. But my personal opinion is this one will get done. It will get lined up in advance. And in stark contrast to the last window, it's an example only months into their tenure of the ownership group learning how the window works in their first window. And then making sure that they work around the clock to plan windows ahead so they don't have that same panic or urgency or volumes of outgoings or final day scrambles to get names. Some of that is always just the nature of football and the window. Some of it's a knock on effect due to other people moving, some of it's opportunism. But where possible, if you can get your business done in a structured way and plan it in advance, then you can relax a little bit towards the end of the window. And clearly, when you look at even just deploy to try and get in Kunku, whether it happens or not. And as I say, I think it will because it's close. But the same with Vardil, the same with Liao. We're seeing a pattern now of Chelsea saying, right, that was our first window. A lot of the people involved in that window had never been in that environment before. They've learned. They're expert negotiators, but they've never been in that environment before. So now they're saying, what have we learned? And how can we improve? And how can we continue the momentum of targets we didn't get or didn't want in this window or couldn't afford in this window? And how can we take that into either January or the summer in a way where we know they're coming or we know they're likely or we've done as much as we can legwork-wise to give ourselves the best possible chance of getting them? And I think what you'll see in future windows now, especially as Chelsea bolster their recruitment, is just a lot more structure and a lot less panic.
1: And and that's what we want to see, because the last time I think we did our business early was the summer of 2014 uh, under Jose Mourinho when he brought in Cesc, Diego, mm. as early as I think the window opening in June, and, and we went on to win the league the following season. So oh, uh, that season, I beg your pardon. So I always like us to see our do, do, do our business early. Uh, this is very early compared to what we've been doing, but I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, as long as no one tells Barcelona that Leipzig may be open to selling someone else, because I can't go through that again with with Barcelona taking over our deals. Um, ben, I, I was going to talk about Vardiol, but it seems like that's not as advanced or not as further along as the Nkunku deal. Uh, so we'll definitely keep an eye out on your uh, what you share on Twitter and as well as... Um,
0: yeah, just on Vardio, yeah. though, it's important to note it's different because... Right not only are there other bidders that are advanced, but you have a higher price and that then has to be reflected in another window, whether January or the summer, does that drop? Does that go up? And it can all depend on anything from terms to suitors to other bids. So that just requires negotiation. I think Chelsea tried on that towards the end of the window to see if they could lock that in and almost get the deal done a bit like Nkunku, a bit like Naby Keita to Liverpool as well. So you can see what they're trying, but that's not been pulled off yet. So we have to wait and see on that. But I think the other thing people don't realise sometimes, and this is the same with Nkunku too, is that if a player knows the release clause is low, or if they know regardless of a release clause, that the club they're at will sell or will be forced to sell, then they might just sign a new deal. And It may be as a bit of a stretch with, say, Jude Bellingham, although Dortmund will try their luck in January to get him to sign a new deal. Kane at Spurs, they'll offer him a new deal, but they might still allow him to leave for the right price, whether that's a gentleman's agreement, whether that's a release clause, whether that's if they don't make Champions League football. But you'll see this regularly. Even James Madison could sign a new deal at Leicester, but still know that he's going to go in the summer. And the thing people don't get is it's not just about the club and protecting the price. And fans always ask me, "Well, why would a player do that? Why, if they only signed a deal last year, will they sign another deal? Why, if they want to leave, will they sign a new long-term deal? And it is usually because that comes with improved terms that then you use as leverage. So say you're in Kunku, why'd you sign if you knew Chelsea were interested? You could have just joined Chelsea last window. You could have joined Chelsea in January. You could have made it a lot cheaper For the clubs that want you but the players rewarded and if you are let's say leipzig and kunku you'll give him a better deal and you can afford that because you know that even though technically you've committed to that wage all the way through until the contract you know that he's going to be gone within a calendar year so you can afford to pay him that bump in wages and you get that back off whatever the transfer fee is and you set the release clause accordingly to offset the extra wages so even though it's marginal you know if let's just say the wages for the however many months he's still at leipzig total and i'm just making this up 2 million you put an extra 2 million on the release clause and then whoever buys them gets you the amount that you're prepared to accept from the release clause and all of the wages. So actually, in a weird way, the club that buys them in the summer are paying that part of the wages in essence. And if you can possibly do that through a release clause or if you can get more, obviously, in the fee, then you've kept your player for a bit longer. You've kept your player happy because they're on improved terms. You still get your money, and that player can negotiate because they're not going to take a pay cut to join Chelsea. So whatever they're on as part of their new deal, they're going to get equal to or better. So it becomes win-win-win. And it wouldn't surprise me if a Jude Bellingham, knowing that, does exactly the same thing. You set a release clause, because people think of release clauses like Barcelona, it's a billion. Why on (laughs) earth are you doing that? No one's ever going to pay that. But in, in this day and age, a release clause is often set at the exact ideal price that a club wants and whether or not the market value changes or not can be part of the the risk. But generally, you, you set it there and you're like, if I get that, brilliant. It's kind of what we wanted. And you might bill it as, well, he's worth more now. or You might bill it as, I would have liked a bit more. But generally, if you set it that low, it's the exact amount that you want. So the club wins and then the player wins because they carry improved terms through to what they're negotiating with the club that they always knew that they were joining. And this is why they do it. So signing a new contract sort of is a way of the selling club and the player colluding almost. <laughs> and that's not the best word, but you know what I mean yeah. to ensure that when that player leaves club benefits, player benefits, And actually, in a weird way, if the release clause, instead of like Barcelona sometimes do, is set at a reasonable amount at the top end of uh, market value, usually, um, then even the club buying the player can benefit. And what's interesting to say about Nkunku is just that um, maybe because the player was worried about staying at the club or maybe because the market value is wrong. Maybe Leipzig believe because they are experts at valuation. Maybe they don't think 75 million is viable, uh, but 60 million euros uh, feels like a good price. It feels like Leipzig won't be too disappointed with somewhere in that ballpark. It feels like Nkunku is happy to do a full year and then leave. So this is just a good example of, um, instead of thinking of clubs, buyers, sellers, groups, whatever, as rivals, this is just a good example of uh, assuming it comes off. Chelsea, Red Bull group and player um all through sort of separate things because Chelsea obviously had no say yeah. in the release clause or uh, the new deal but it's just a good example of um all three working you know in reasonable ways to ensure that ultimately in the long term everyone is happy.
1: Yeah and and that makes perfect sense because it's like you said it's a win-win-win across the board uh even though for Chelsea or whoever the bank lovers they may end up saying you know, we were looking at something different, but ultimately, you get the player. The player gets what he wants in the move and the terms, and the selling club get a little bit uh, yeah. more out of it. So that that definitely makes sense. Ben, I want to move on to this weekend's fixtures and and what's coming in the Premier League. Um, I know we've just got a few more minutes here, but I want to start with Bournemouth Leicester. I know you're you're very close to Leicester. <laughs> it's been a tough season, but you did get your first win the other night uh, at home against Nottingham Forest, which must have felt good. Do you see this kind of a turning point, that game uh, versus Nottingham Forest for Leicester? Because you you do want to move away from the bottom of the table as soon as possible. Uh, and ultimately for Brendan Rodgers, he wants to get some momentum going ahead of the, the break that's coming up in, in about a month's time. So how do you see this one going? And ultimately, how do you see the season from this point forward for Leicester?
0: Well, I think Leicester will get something from the game. That's the first thing to say. And... They've looked okay going forwards. It's been set pieces and generally conceding goals that have been the problem. And Danny Ward's looked a bit shaky. So Forest was big because it was off the back of an international break. It was off the back of a 6-2 defeat against Spurs. Leicester were okay for parts of that game though, but the scoreline isn't good. And let's not forget that before that 6-2, It was 5-2 away at then Graham Potter's Brighton. So Leicester needed to turn it around. The clean sheet was a massive bonus. James Madison was on fire. Just a really good team performance against, admittedly, quite a toothless Nottingham Forest side. So that's a start. I think when you look at the run of Forest, three points now, Bournemouth away, Palace at home, Leeds at home, Wolves away. That's a kind run of fixtures for Leicester towards the back end of October, and the expectation still is that there is some pressure on Brendan Rodgers to get, I think now, six points or certainly a draw and a win from the next two games. You could argue six points from the next three games or four points from the next two. And then at that point, Brendan Rodgers perhaps feels like he's completely safe so you can't only take Forest alone. I think there is still some pressure heading into Bournemouth. If Leicester lost to Bournemouth, lost at home to Palace, then Brendan Rogers might be gone, or he's in exactly the same position once again. And if Leicester can afford to sack him, they might. But I don't think anyone's thinking that at the football club now. I think they're thinking Brendan Rodgers is capable of turning things around. I think Leicester go to Bournemouth very confident. And I think they'll get something from the game, whether a point or a victory. My prediction is a 3-1 Leicester win. And then suddenly you play home to Crystal Palace and it could be three wins on the bounce. And all of a sudden people are talking about Leicester as mid-table or beyond. Because on paper, although they lack depth, they still have a lot going for them, particularly in the final third. So I think they'll have too much for Bournemouth personally. Um, whereas Forest was good, back-to-back wins for Leicester puts a completely different complexion on the season because in all likelihood, if they win the game, then they will move out of the relegation zone or they could anyway. It just depends by how many they win the game for because they've got a worse goal difference than Wolves or Palace. So even if they draw, it might not be enough, but it moves them to seven points and that might be the same total as West Ham. It might be the same total as Southampton. And then, as I said before, you got home to Palace who have not had the best starts of the season. They've only won one of their first seven games. You've got a game against Leeds United who can be quite open and expansive and I would expect Leicester to win that even though Leeds are a little bit close to mid-table. And then you've got a game against Wolves, who are also currently in the relegation zone. So this is important to Leicester, not necessarily because 100% of a wider reflection on the season and top half, or something close to it, it's more just because they've got a run where they're basically playing bottom-half teams. Bournemouth are 13th, Leeds are currently 12th, Crystal Palace are 17th, Wolves are 18th. So it's almost the opposite. If you don't win these games, you are dropping points and maybe giving three points to sides that are in or around or close to the bottom three. And because Leicester are in the bottom three, if that happens then they're in big, big trouble heading towards the World Cup. So I think they need to just look at October as getting themselves a little bit of breathing space and getting out of the relegation zone. And then at that point, they can have a January window. They'll have some money to spend from Fafana and that's when they can play with a bit more freedom. So I look at it as glass half empty almost. I'm not thinking about it as what can Forest lead to in the wider part of the season. I'm thinking about it more as yikes. We must still urgently get points from all of these bottom half teams otherwise if we don't then we'll end up in big big trouble heading into the break and the January window so it's not it's not really about should we win or shouldn't we win it's not about winning all the games it's almost just make sure you don't lose to these teams pick up another win against Bournemouth and then happily draw with Crystal Palace pick up a win against Leeds and then you can actually afford to lose away at Wolves or draw with them so on paper sure I think we should be getting a lot of points from this run, but as long as we don't go on a losing run now, they'll be okay.
1: Yeah, and they certainly, like you said, need to build off of the, the last game uh, and Bournemouth away, obviously an away game, but it's an opportunity to to do exactly that. Uh, you mentioned Wolves, who sit right above Leicester and they travel to my Chelsea. Um, luckily for, here, for us here, all these games are at 10 a.m. instead of an early, early kickoff, yeah. uh, which is nice. But Wolves traveling to Chelsea, I mean, they've fired their manager recently. Um, I don't think they've brought a replacement at the time of recording. I know they're talking about Loptegi, who left uh, Sevilla earlier this Mm. week. Uh, So that'll be an interesting one if he does come in. But it's not just Wolves coming to Chelsea. It's Diego Costa also coming back to Chelsea, which will be uh, an interesting appearance from him. I don't think he starts, uh, given that he hasn't played much, but he definitely will get some minutes um ultimately i think we have built up some momentum given the last two games uh, and wolves with a little bit of Mm. um, distraction in the background with the managerial situation uh, i think we should have enough to to beat them uh we did tie with them at the end of last season two two after being two up so or two one up uh so it definitely will be a difficult game and wolves have always proven to be a a tough opposition at home for us um but I think we have enough going for us at this point that we win it 3-1. How do you see this going, Ben?
0: Yeah, I think you put your mortgage here on a Chelsea win, to be honest with you. Wolves have got uncertainty. They're not scoring goals. There's no confidence at the moment within their team. And you have to look at them, as many people said, even before a ball was kicked because of how poorly they ended last season as firm relegation candidates. So let's see whether they are galvanized in any way. I agree with you that I don't think Costa starts in the game, but I just think that Wolves's problem is that they have scored three goals, I think it is, in the Premier League in eight games. That's right. Yep. Three goals. Now, the only saving grace is that they've only conceded nine, which is not terrible for... A uh, Premier League average uh, like Bournemouth, Leicester, yeah, Villa, I think Fulham, even who are in the top half of the table, and Man United, who are like sixth, even Chelsea, um, have conceded more, I think, because their goal difference is even, I believe. And I know they've yeah. scored 10 goals, so uh, defensively they can dig in, but Chelsea are at home. I think if you were away at Molyneux, you might see it as a banana skin akin to Crystal Palace, who were unlucky not to get something from that game but I think that the advantage of having a a late win against Palace where Chelsea were not at their best but then having a dominant performance against Milan is that Potter's seen both sides he's seen a sort of tense come from behind win and he's seen a more clinical performance and you've got back-to-back games you've got that buzz of the victory over Milan in the Champions League. And I just think this is going to be Chelsea's game where they run right. I think this is going to be Chelsea's game where they score early and they put four or five past Wolves and they show up Wolves uh, for the sort of um, creatively clueless team that they are. And if they score early, even the Wolves, as I say, have been quite organised and quite good defensively, uh, Wolves will be forced to make it a more open game. So that obviously is going to be the key to it, um, is can they score early? Can they kill the game off early? But I think um, if I was playing fantasy football, <laughs> I, I would be taking a risk this week. Uh, I would be not captaining Haaland, which uh, is madness. And I would be, this is if you're trying to catch up with your points, I'd be sticking the armband on Raheem Sterling, because I think this is going to be the game where he does some serious damage.
1: You're getting me very excited for this, Ben. Uh, I was saying three, but if I'll take four or five, uh, because it's been a very long time since I've seen my team score that many. Um, Let's move on. You mentioned Holland, and that's the next one. I don't want to go too deep into this because it's Man City at home against Southampton. Uh, We know how this should go. I think we know how this will go. What we don't really know is how many Haaland will score, and he seems to be... uh, basically scoring a hat trick at home at least uh do you think there's another hat trick in this for him or or do Southampton find something in there to shut him up
0: well it's impossible to shut him (laughs) up at the moment that's the first thing to say but you know Manchester City have had these kind of games where they've conceded twos and threes so Southampton have got nothing to lose and that's the thing that teams are realizing away at City now that they really don't just have to go and park the bus. They've got nothing to lose. They've got to go for it. They've got to try and score early first. And then after that, they can think about parking the bus. So this is a Man City win. Uh, They're probably going to hit three or four again. I think Southampton will score. So I agree with you, 3-1 or 4-1. But at some point, let's not forget Pep Guardiola is going to have to think about resting Haaland. And maybe the only thing stopping him is that Haaland's not off to a World Cup. So that becomes a factor in the selection. But we will see him rotated, in my opinion. It's just whether or not it's going to be this game or it's going to be the reverse fixture against Copenhagen. And my gut instinct is that it will be a start for Haaland here. And then he might not start away at Copenhagen in the Champions League because Manchester City are in control of that group. Uh, But let's see. But Haaland's not going to score hat-tricks and start in every game. (laughs) Um, So um, that is a consideration uh, as well specific to Haaland. But Manchester City will win this game. Southampton don't have enough depth um or uh, form uh, defensively so far this season it's just one to watch with Ralph Hasenhurstel as well like it, it always feels harsh if you uh, change your manager um after a defeat to like a big team that's why a lot of people thought that it was harsh with Scott Parker when he was sacked after true. that 9-0 defeat um but it was different because uh, there were problems behind the scenes Fine, yeah. i think parker's post match interview revealed that but i think Hasenhurstel treading on thin ice because he's had a lot of periods when at Southampton, where he's almost gone, including, let's not forget, that 9-0 home defeat to my team, Leicester. And he's always found a way of bouncing back. But the one thing that's been consistent with his tenure at Southampton, even when things are going well, is they've thrown away so many points from winning positions. And now they're in a position where they could, potentially, if they're beaten heavily, fall into uh, the relegation zone. Even if they're not beaten heavily, um, they could drop into that relegation zone. Um a lot will obviously depend on uh, Wolves. So from a Chelsea point of view, uh, if they beat Wolves, then Wolves will stay there in the bottom three. And then if Leicester win, they might move out the bottom three, but the maximum Leicester can move to is seven points. Southampton are already on seven points. So a lot's going to depend on goal difference. And um, if Man City drop them, they could drop into the relegation zone. And, you know, we're heading into that period again, where if you're going to make a change, you think about it now and anyone contemplating that change, will be using the World Cup break, will be using the extra time to make that change earlier, knowing that their new manager can bed in and knowing that that new manager isn't going to arrive after, let's say, historically, and seasons gone by, that festive period, and then they have to walk into a new club. They have to walk into a club that's played uh, 19 games. They have to walk into a club that are tired after the festive period. They have to walk into a congested January with FA Cup, and they've got the window. If you're smart and you want to get rid of Hassan Hütel, you get rid of him now, or certainly by the break, so within the next two or three weeks, and then uh, not only have you got a break for him to work with the non-World Cup players, but he's in a month or so before the window opens, which is significant because you want his input. So I don't think that Hassan Hütel, if he loses at Man City, um, will be sacked. But what I do think is if you look at their two fixtures after that, home to West Ham, away at Bournemouth, if those three games don't go according to plan, I think he's gone by mid-October to allow them to find a manager to come in and have ample time to work with the full squad before the break, because many of them will be off to the World Cup or some of them anyway, in the case of Southampton. And then obviously the other advantage, regardless of that World Cup aspect, is just that you would want that new manager in by November at the latest so he can input towards the January window. And I think that that mid-season World Cup might just make Southampton axe Hassan if results don't turn around earlier than they might have planned if we didn't have a mid-season World Cup.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned 9-0 to Leicester. I think they lost 9-0 in Manchester last season. They did, yeah. Uh, and so I'm sure Southampton fans may not sleep too well tonight just knowing the prospect that they travel to Man City. But like you said, City have conceded quite a few and it could turn into an exciting game. Um and I think just on the point of wrestling Holland, I think if I'm not wrong, next weekend, Man City played Liverpool. So wrestling mm-hmm. Holland midweek may make sense. Uh, I'm going to skip over a few games here, Ben, because I do want to talk about some of the, the bigger games on Sunday. Uh, I'll jump ahead and then I'll come back to this one. So let's talk about Everton, Manchester United. Uh, a lot of people predicted, and I'm not saying Everton are out in the clear yet, but I predicted relegation, scrap, conceding goals for fun. If I'm not wrong, I'm going to look this up real quick. Uh, Everton have maybe the second best defense having conceded seven uh, and have been quietly picking up some points along the way getting a couple of wins set up at 11th right now uh, hosting a United side that were embarrassed in the derby last uh, weekend how do you see this one going and can
0: Lampard get one over United? Yeah very possibly I mean they're at home I think they've actually got the best defense I can't think of a team that have That's right. Actually, fewer yeah. than seven goals. Arsenal have conceded eight and off the top of my head. So have Newcastle and possibly Brentford as well. But there's no one I can think of that has conceded seven or fewer. So they've got the best defence, challenges, scoring goals, and they've got themselves to 11th, I believe, in the table. They're on a nice little run at the moment. And Manchester United have struggled in many games to score goals. I mean, even in Cyprus in the Europa League, they ended up getting three, but it was a nervy finish and they wasted a number of opportunities. Ronaldo hasn't got going. I would be surprised if he starts in that match and coming off the back of a disappointing Manchester derby where they were dominated, they were annihilated really by Manchester City. Manchester United need a response at Goodison Park and it's going to be very difficult. It wouldn't remotely surprise me if Everton get something from this game and it becomes important for both because if Everton win the game then they suddenly develop a bit of breathing space which given people thought they would be sucked into a relegation battle is very useful. It's the same for Fulham, you know, they're already in double digits so You might only need 35 points to stay up. I know people say 40 is the target, but Fulham find themselves almost a third of the way there. And it could be exactly the same for Everton. If they win, they're over a third there and the third from bottom team might still only have six points. And that becomes very significant because it just alleviates the burden. It calms everybody down a little bit. And it's equally as important to Everton because let's not forget they're talking to suitors about potentially selling the club as well. So if they were bottom of the table, that might affect the sale price as well. So Everton can get something from that game, but Manchester United are still Manchester United. And um, By that, I mean that they find a way, much like last season, of playing badly and yet qualifying for Europe. And of course, they want Champions League football, but they still got Europa League football, and it could have been worse. It could have been Europa Conference League. And again, they've had some absolutely disastrous performances (laughs) so far this season. They're sixth in the table with a minus goal difference. They've been hammered in a number of games by teams um, that are now below them in the table or close to them in the table. And suddenly, if they beat Everton, they could hypothetically, could hypothetically find themselves level with fourth place. So that just tells you everything. They've won four of their seven games. Uh, They've either shown flashes of brilliance or they've been a disaster class with not much in between. So uh, the real question in this game is, can they find consistency? Which Manchester United side are going to show up and... um, it's a tough game to predict. I'm excited to see whether Everton can continue to be organised and find more of a cutting edge, or whether Manchester United can be dominant and show that they are actually Champions League contenders. And it's a chance for both sides to make a statement. It's a chance for Everton to push into the top half. It's a chance for Manchester United to make it five wins out of eight, which regardless of the games they've been bad in, statistically speaking, really wouldn't be a particularly bad start to the season. And my prediction is neither will happen. And this one will finish (laughs) (laughs) 1-1. And
1: both sides may be happy with that. I am interested in in just a a comment more than anything. It's a, a late Sunday kickoff, which I've rarely seen in the Premier League. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how that plays out, especially with the goodest and under the lights, which would be exciting. Uh, ben, I know we've only got a couple of minutes, so we may not be able to jump fully into this, but I'd love to get your prediction on Arsenal versus Liverpool. Uh, I, I think this game at home for Arsenal changes the complexion and the feeling around it, given how they've done last week, especially against Spurs and Liverpool themselves not having the best time conceding goals, scoring goals too, that has to be pointed out, but It should just point for an exciting game and one that either side could edge it at the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think after just eight games, although Liverpool have got a game in hand, let's not forget that Liverpool are on 10 and Arsenal are on 21. So if Liverpool lose this 24-10, I mean, that is a 14-point gap. And we will have only played, from Arsenal's perspective, nine games. So again, it can be reduced by Liverpool's game in hand. But that is an absolutely humongous gap. And not only if they lose to Arsenal-Liverpool, if you assume Manchester City win and move to 23 points, then it will be 10 points Liverpool, 23 points Manchester City, who are still the favourites for the title. And there's no coming back from that for Liverpool. So I think this is a must-win for Liverpool. From Arsenal's point of view, they can afford to lose it, but they'll inevitably lose top spot if they do. And... I think that that could be significant psychologically. But yeah, it's a much, much more important game for Liverpool than it is for Arsenal. I think Liverpool need to change that approach. If the roles were reversed or if the table was tighter, then you would basically say that Liverpool could take a point and be happy with it. But I think it's must-win for Liverpool. I, I think Arsenal don't have to win the game, but if they do, they make a statement from it. Um, and I actually think Liverpool will. Um, go and win this game. I think they'll win it 2-1. I think that much like when Manchester United beat Arsenal, this will be a wobble for Arsenal and it will just tighten everything up and make the race for both the Premier League and the top four even more exciting. But I'm going out on a limb here and I think Liverpool win this one by two goals to one.
1: And and I, I'd be okay with that because I'd like to see Man City go top instead of listening to the Arsenal fans. But uh, that wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please continue, subscribe, like, and follow us. It's at the Premier Chels on all major podcast providers, Instagram and on Twitter, it's at Premier Chels. We will be back with the review of the weekend, but until then, stay safe and up to Chels. Hey, guys. The Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top-quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League
0: winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code, TPCOFFEE15, to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.